Welcome to the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. I'm Chris Wilmore, the executive audio engineer and sometimes host. The best way to support our podcast is to subscribe and share. Also, please take a minute to review and rate the show on iTunes or the podcast streaming service you use to listen to No Baton Needed. Doing so helps new listeners find our show. In this episode, a conversation with the Assistant Professor of Vocal and Choral Music Education at California State University, Long Beach, Dr. Joshua Palki. Take it away, Daniel. So, Josh Palki, Dr. Josh Palki, welcome. It's wonderful to have you on our podcast. You are a music educator, a conductor, a singer, an author, graduate student mentor, a thought leader in transgender equality in the choral world, and you've performed the Choral Project, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about your journey in the world of choral music and how you landed where you are now in your professional career? Sure. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, how, how brief would you like me to make this? Uh, Whatever is comfortable. <laughs> okay. So the short-ish version of a long story is that I'm from the middle of nowhere. I'm from a very small iron mining community in northern Michigan. And I was lucky enough to be able to participate in a lot of honor choirs growing up. And those were held at the University of Michigan. And one of the people that I met doing that my sophomore year in high school was Charlene Archibek, Dr. Charlene Archibek from San Jose State, of course, your mentor and mine. And that was one of the kind of pivotal moments for me because coming from this very rural place I didn't experience a lot of choral excellence shall we say and so to be singing you know with 250 of the best singers in the state in Hill Auditorium was a very transformative experience so um I had another sort of mountaintop experience that following year with Anton Armstrong from St Olaf College and then ended up going on to undergrad to study music education in Indiana, but spent a year as a, a guest student through a, a program called the National Student Exchange doing a, a, a sort of intensive study in choral conducting at San Jose State while, while Dr. A was still doing um, the faculty early retirement program. So she was still there teaching and doing choral leaders and things. And then I was a teacher in San Jose Unified. That was my first job out of undergrad. And that's when I was singing with the Choral Project. And then I went on to do my master's in choral conducting with uh, Dr. Edith Copley at Northern Arizona University, taught for a couple of years in Maryland, then did my PhD at Michigan State University with uh, my PhD is in music ed, but my cognate is in choral conducting. So I, it was very much a hybrid program and then got the job here at Cal State Long Beach in 2016. So that's the Cliff's Notes version. Oh, wonderful. State of California is very lucky to have you. Thank you. So uh, you're this trailblazer right now talking about language and identity and the choral rehearsal and how educators and leaders of ensembles can create a, a space that feels welcoming and safe for anybody who wants to participate. So as we get into that, for the benefit of our listeners and, and my benefit too, um, 
Can you speak about the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity, which you often discuss in your presentations, and walk us through that, you know, defining for us what cisgender and transgender means as well? Sure. That's a great, that's a great question. When I, when I do presentations, I, I normally show a Venn diagram and one circle says sexuality and one says gender, and there's a little bit of overlap, right? Um, so it's a great question because we often throw around LGBTQ as a sort of catch-all, right? But the people within that community can have vastly different experiences, especially because uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, those are describing one's sexuality. So to whom one is attracted romantically, sexually, or not, right? So generally in my academic writing, I, I have taken to using LGBTQA, and that A is inclusive of the people that identify as uh, aromantic, asexual, so to whom that, that, uh, sign- that, that does not apply, basically. So the so lesbian gay bisexual describing sexuality the t is describing transgender right so this is something quite different in that it's it's describing someone's gender identity right so one's sort of inner gender compass and someone who identifies in the trans community can doesn't necessarily have a a queer or a gay sexuality that is associated with that, right? You could identify as transgender and identify as a straight person, right? You could identify, it's, it's all mix and match, right? So, um, you know, any sexuality can be paired with any gender identity, basically. Uh, cisgender means that, so when you are, when you are born, you are assigned a sex at birth, right? A, a, a term that I'm hearing more recently that's kind of newer is so. So some people say that they were uh, that they are AMAB or AFAB, so assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth. Uh, some some trans folks are now describing that as socialized male or socialized female, which takes away the sort of kind of bizarre reference to, you know, a doctor making a determination based upon your genitalia at birth, which is a bit of an odd thing to discuss. Um, So cisgender would be somebody that is assigned male at birth that identifies as male, or conversely, it was assigned female at birth and identifies as female. So you're assigned birth sex and your, your gender identity match. If you're transgender, that is, that can mean myriad things. So there is there are literally hundreds and thousands of terms that people use to describe their gender identity. So transgender, the transgender umbrella is basically encompassing all the people that have a sort of, um, uh, that basically anyone that's not cisgender is, is, is trans. Um, and, and a kind of good rule of thumb is, uh, who is trans? Anyone who says they are. So, right. And just so for some clarity, you touched on it in one sentence, the the difference between sex and gender, one has to do specifically with genitalia and the other one has to do with identity. And, and sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. Right, right. Except that, you know, 
Yes, kind of. But, but you know, and some people think like, oh, it's easy, right? Because gender is a spectrum and sex is a binary. Well, that's not true either because of, of the intersex community, right? So, yeah, it's... Th- that, that's, that's the essence of it, yeah. But it's, you know, I mean, it's I'm, very I'm complicated. Totally distilled. I mean, the, the intersex issue is... is a, I mean, it runs in tandem, but it is a very different thing. And it comes with its own problems where... A doctor didn't recognize that, oh, this person that I see testicles, so this person is a boy, but didn't notice that they also have ovaries, that this is actually a person who's completely intersex right in the middle. I remember reading an article about 15 years ago, the the Chicago, and it it may have changed by now as they keep doing research, but um, Chicago Medical Center um, had done a study and determined that there were five sexes there was male there was merm mermaphrodite there was hermaphrodite right in, smack dab in the middle so mermaphrodite the the male genitalia is more pronounced than the female hermaphrodite they're equal Fermaphrodite, the female genitalia is more pronounced than the male and then female that so it, there's another spectrum for you and um, there's a wonderful book called Middlesex that I highly recommend everybody read. If it's a, a phenomenal story about a, a person and who is intersex and sort of what their life is like and and how that came to be. It's yeah. a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. It, won, it won the Pulitzer, I think. So. And the, and the person immigrates to Michigan to Detroit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so for the um, let's see, you you talked about that. You've researched and documented transgender experiences in coral spaces. Can you tell us a bit about that and maybe talk about how and why you started addressing transgender inequality in the coral community? Sure. So since I did my master's in coral conducting, I came into my doctoral program without any real research experience or chops. So my first semester of my PhD, I took our the doctor level qualitative research course. And the final project for the course is basically throughout the semester, do a research study and write it up, right? And I had a really hard time uh, coming, w- coming up with a research topic. And after several rounds of me sort of banging my head against the wall and going back to the professor and him sort of pushing me, uh, I... I was I was very frustrated and 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 he said, "Okay, how about this? Think about your own public school teaching career and think about the things that kept you from being the kind of teacher that you wanted to be. And when you realize what those things are, you will have come up with your research topic." And after some reflection, I realized that what it was for me was that I could never as a public school teacher really reconcile my what I understood to be a professional teacher identity with my queer identity, that those were always a bit at odds, which caused me to sort of keep the students emotionally at arm's length, which in a choral space obviously diminishes the experience because we are, you know, it's a it's such a feeling full and, you know, empathic experience, as you know. So as I, you know, part of doing a research study is reviewing the, the extant literature about what's been written about that thing. So as you get into the music ed literature, there's like, you know, a, a few stories documented about the experiences of lesbian music teachers, a, f- a couple of research studies about uh, gay music teachers, but really 
uh, uh, hardly anything about the trans experience within the music ed research community, which is a very small research community, right? So, um, so that sort of like piqued my interest, and I was like, well, this is really uh, th- these are stories that that need to be told, um, and. So I kept sort of following that path. And then when I was choosing a research topic for my dissertation, it came down to I had a, a, a large interest in this area. And then I had a, a, another topic that I was also exploring. And I had a really hard time choosing, partially because when you're, the f- when you're one of the first people to write about a thing, that can be seen as controversial. And I had people, no one, none of my own professors or mentors, but I had people from other universities say, you know, you should really be cautious because if you write about this, you know, if this, if you choose this for your dissertation topic, you will never get a job because this is way too out there, you know. Um, but it was the thing that I was most passionate about. And, and eventually I just decided, well, if, if, you know, if higher ed doesn't accept this kind of work, then maybe higher ed isn't where I belong. So. Uh, I I proceeded with that and then did my dissertation study, which was where I spent a year talking with uh, and observing three transgender high school students that sang in high school choral programs and also interviewed sort of um, important others in their life. So their their teachers and, um, you know, different for in different for the three stories. But um, I talked to guidance counselors and principals and parents and uh you know, lot of drama teachers and all, all all sorts of people that sort of surrounded that person and also witnessed their their gender journeys, and so that's how I sort of got started, and then that led into a large project that I just finished, which was a two year long research project where I documented the stories of an additional, I think, twenty seven trans and gender expansive musicians and seven teachers of trans and gender expansive musicians. And then those stories are going to be chronicled in a book, which is coming out soon with Oxford University Press. Oh, wonderful. Out of curiosity, what was the topic that didn't make the cut? You said you had these choices and you went, what was the other one? Yeah. So uh, Lansing and East Lansing, Michigan, I found out when I moved there that they have this huge folk music scene and part of it is they have this really strong community singing culture. So the Unitarian Universalist Church in East Lansing, it, well, it, it's moved to Lansing since, but it used to be in East Lansing. The, I think it's the first Monday of the month they have these community sings. And they have a sort of rotating cast of, of folk musicians that provide accompaniment and this one amazing song leader. And like like 70 or 80 people show up for this every month right and they also have this huge thing called the midwinter singing festival in east lansing every winter and i was just i was i had heard about this community sing and i went to check one out and it was really surprising and jarring to me because it is it is the antithesis of a choral rehearsal right it's it's a lot of people that sort of um had been uh, for lack of a better term, kind of burned in choral spaces and found it way too uh, inhibiting and too perfectionistic. And, you know, it's like, no one cares about your tone. No one cares about your intonation. Like, And, you know, it's sort of like, it, it, it was really 
surprising to me as a choral musician and i and i um yeah it's it's interesting i actually and and so that actually i i've i've actually gone back because i collected a bunch of data that i never did anything with and part of that data collection was um i had gone to uh a chorus america conference and alice parker was talking about community singing and so i actually interviewed her back in 2014 and i've been sitting on that data and i finally turned it into an article that's in second round of review for a, a journal. So um, I've sort of actually gone back to that thing a little That's bit. Terrific. And for our listeners who don't know who Alice Parker is, she's one of America's best arranger composers, long, long relationship with Robert Shaw, the Robert Shaw Chorale. They, they did a lot of work together, just really an extraordinary woman. And still just kicking. <laughs> she's, she's way born up there, in, but she's still born going. Born in 1925. And it's crazy. Yeah. So back to uh, topic, the White House's new website now allows people to choose their personal pronouns in their contact form, which is wonderful. Why is this important and how can we incorporate this into our everyday lives and specifically into the fabric of choruses old and new? Great question. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that about the webs- the White House website. That's fabulous. So the sharing of pronouns is just a way to ensure that you're not making an assumption, right? Because when we encounter a person that we have never met before, the brain loves to categorize things, right? So we want to put them in a in a gender box, right? Which normally means we want to categorize them as this is a man or this is a woman, right? And our brain gets very, a little bit perturbed when we don't know, right? So but we can't know someone's gender identity just from looking at them because it's an internal thing, right? So the sharing of pronouns or asking someone what their pronouns are is just a way of, of really understanding what that person's gender identity is and, and what they're comfortable being called, right? So I would say, I'm hoping that in 10 years, the, the sharing of pronouns will be so normalized that no one thinks twice about it anymore, right? You know, may, maybe a kind of allegory would be, I think, you know, probably when people started using Ms. instead of Miss or Mrs., that that might have been jarring. But now it's, it, you know, to me and my, to my generation, that's so common, we don't think twice about it anymore. So I'm hoping it'll be a similar thing. So uh, adding it to things like your email signature is very easy. Uh, when I do a presentation, the title slide of my PowerPoint always has my pronouns. When I introduce myself in public, I say my name and my pronouns. Um, I ask. Uh, I always have my pronouns on my uh, after my Zoom name, and I encourage my students to do the same. So, uh, uh, normalizing it that way, but also not expecting your singers or your students to share their pronouns publicly, right? So one thing I do with all of my classes at the beginning of the semester is I have a Google form that has a bunch of questions to help me get to know them. And one of those data points that I collect is their their pronouns. One of the things that we're um, wanting to move into in the Crawl Project in our printed programs is to do the pronouns after the names in the roster, because I feel like, I mean, especially with so much it's very much dialed into the Coral Project's identity is a sense of belonging, that you all belong here. We're all part of this extended family. And seeing that in a program can be really powerful for an individual who comes and they feel like they're now connected to this community where, oh, look, they're they're sharing that with me in this very 
special, unique kind of way that they belong. Absolutely. I love that idea. All right. Now I'd love to talk to you about your experience singing with the Choral Project. Um, you were um, not just a singer in the Choral Project, but you were also, I was lucky, to be our assistant conductor. So do you remember singing Deep River with us in the, the gospel concert, the Tell the World concert? You were a featured soloist on that. How could I forget? My students every semester find it and remind me about it. So, yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. You sounded so good. Thank I, you. I remember hearing you as a student at San Jose State. And you, uh, for those of our viewers who have never seen you, you are you're, have a very slight trim frame. You've got this very bright, smiling, youthful-looking face. And then you open your mouth and this incredibly rich, mellifluous tone comes out. It's unexpected because it, it. If I just heard you, I would think you're like a big husky guy. <laughs> so, yeah, Thank it's wonderful. It's a terrific voice. Thank um, you. What? Tell me more a little bit about what your experience was like singing with the Choral Project. I will start by telling you what it was like before I sang with the Choral Project because I started with the Choral Project my second year teaching, and that first year teaching without singing was really tough for me. Um, I, it's, it, you know, it's really hard to, to teach people all day, you know, to sort of give your all to, to teach people what you love to do and then to not be able to do it yourself. So I found myself really struggling. I, I found myself sort of artistically, uh, with an empty tank, uh, by the end of that first year. So, so, so musically and, and spiritually, I needed, I needed the experience. So it was, it was really it was really great to to be able to experience that high level of music making and to to have an experience and it also gave me a lot of perspective too because i would it, you know it gave me the perspective of of oh this is what it, this is what a rehearsal is like from from the students or the singer's perspective right and so as a new teacher especially that was really helpful for me to to sort of see things from from both sides um, you know, I feel like I was there at a really incredible time. I have so many, so many wonderful memories, uh, you know, from, uh, I mean, I love the Chateau Julien experiences that we had. Um, I was there when we got to go sing in that competition in San Luis Obispo when, oh, yeah. the, when the town was on fire. <laughs> um, the, I loved, I loved the Tell the World concert. I, uh, I, I had a, a lot of, a lot of, I have a lot of really fond memories, you know. It was a neat time, for sure. And we were lucky to have you in the group. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I was lucky to be there. I, I can say, I knew him when. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, in the context of what we're talking about today, um, how is your perception and understanding 
changed about trans inclusivity and the world of choral music since uh, that performance in 2008 when you sang Deep River? Oh my, a lot, a lot, you know. And so normally when I give presentations talking about gender in, in choir, I always show a picture from my first year teaching at Lincoln High School. And it, it just so happened that in our our top ensemble, the chamber choral, there were 10 sopranos and altos that were wearing dresses and 10 tenors and basses that were wearing tuxedos. And for a yearbook photo, I actually, there's a, a sort of staircase, a kind of amphitheater on campus. And I put them in 10 heterosexual couples, arm in arm, like uh, in, a, in a circle. And when I found that picture, I was like, wow, what was I thinking? Uh, but the point is that I, I, that's not where my brain was at that point, right? As a 22-year-old first-year high school teacher, I was like, got to choose the rep, got to order the uniforms, got to book the bus for festival, got to get a clinician, got, you know, like all of the things. Like I was, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't have the bandwidth at that point to sit and have deep conversations about, you know, the implications of gender and sexuality within my class. So when I had the the great fortune to go to graduate school a couple of times and, and to, to have, have the time and the space to get into that work, then my thinking changed, right? So I, 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 I'm, I really don't ever want to come off like, well, I'm, I'm the gender expert and I've always known. No, like this is, this is all very new to me. So how has my thinking changed? Uh, I, I don't think I thought at all at that point about how much the various layers of our identity can, can, play a role in the choral space, right? So, you know, and the fact that we all have these intersecting layers of identity, you know, we all, because we all have a different socioeconomic status and a different race and a dif- different ethnicity and linguistic background, you know, and, and it's not like when you walk into a choral space that these are all magically stripped away or that one or two of them is, right? You're bringing all of them with you into these experiences. So, in terms of 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 gender equity then you know it it is i'm encouraging conductor teachers to have kind of brave vulnerable conversations right especially around things like voice part assignment right because there is no because there's no monolithic trans experience right it's not like well all trans people are going to want to sing a voice part that matches with their gender identity right you just don't know until you have those conversations with each individual trans singer, right? So, so I think that is where some of the apprehension comes in. And yeah, that's what, that's where the apprehension comes in because I think people are afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or they're going to use the wrong pronoun or they're going to, you know, but to me, those sort of fears and insecurities shouldn't stop us from having these dialogues that can make our spaces more, more welcoming. And I think it's important to highlight that when you're talking about the choral rehearsal, the instrument in play is the part of the body that a person uses as a mean to ex- literally express themselves. So there, there is a slight difference if you were dealing with instrumentalists, because there is an extra thing that's a barrier between my person and what I'm doing. 
But with a singer, this is why teaching somebody to sing well and finding the vulnerability where they can just be totally open and not locked up from fear, it's because the instrument is attached to their body and it's that instrument is the same thing they use to actually talk and express and share how they feel. So you can't separate the sense of creating a safe space for, for who they are as a person. You can't separate that from getting them to sing because it's all part of the same thing. So I think it's powerful. It's valuable. And, and I mean, I haven't really gotten too deep into the, well, I haven't really gotten into the research side of transvocal pedagogy, which is it's a whole other subset of fascinating research that, that, that people are doing, you know, um, because, you know, the, the first person actually that I interviewed for the book is a trans guy that is uh, that graduated from San Jose State and he was on testosterone his senior year. And so his voice was changing the entire time he was preparing for his senior recital. So he ended up having to, to hire or I guess ask a whole slew of his friends with finale ex- of experience to I think in the last week before his recital, he had to transpose every piece down like a like a major third, so that he could actually sing sing the repertoire. You know, so you know that's a whole other whole other fascinating world. And it is very fascinating. Be, before I ask the ask question, to just on a tangent, how do you stand your singers now as compared to what you did that first year at Lincoln? How do I stand them now? In terms of like a photo, in because you you had grouped oh. them in those ten heterosexual couples. Do you have? Uh, I haven't done that many formal photos. I guess when we sang at the CCDA conference, we we just sort of did a a a kind of clump in front of the with a with a you know a weird blue pyramid in the background. So it was all we everyone was sort of sort of mixed together. It's a good question though. It's I I. I keep looking for new ways to to photograph the choir, and I keep falling back on the one that we did that was successful. So it's a yeah, yeah. Um, we have to talk about COVID for a minute because it it obviously is the elephant in everyone's room. How has this virus impacted your life as a conductor and a teacher and musician? A lot, because I I'm not really conducting. I mean, I haven't conducted anything <laughs> since. Uh, so I guess February. Yeah. So at the end of February, there is a really fascinating festival that we have down here. So PSICA is the acronym. So Pacific Southwest Intercollegiate Choral Association. So this is a consortium of four-year colleges and universities in Southern California. And this like way predates uh, even National ACDA or SCBA. So I think we're about to celebrate our 100th anniversary so this was this was started way back by you know charles hurt and um um occidental college help me uh howard swan and and company right so uh anyway so we had that festival the last saturday in february at pomona college and that was the last, that was the, the only performance that I had with University Choir. Because two weeks after that, we were scheduled to go on, we had this really exciting trip uh, 
planned it was our beyond borders tour where we were going to have a whole immersive experience in san diego at the u.s mexico border and do a whole series of concerts near the border and um, have the students learn about the situation there with immigration and we had a whole program planned around that and so um, uh, you know, we had a con- you know we had a home concert and then that tour that was obviously all canceled. So uh, and at CSULB we're only offering one section of of choir this entire school year since we're virtual. So my colleague Jonathan Talberg is doing is doing that, and so I'm only teaching music ed courses. Wow. So so I'm not working with an ensemble at, at all, really. It'll be so nice when we can go back to being in a rehearsal space and creating community creating community in that way. <clears throat> It, I know everybody's sort of itching for it. And even though John can actually do the, the online stuff, it's still not the same. It's just... No. Yeah. No. So jumping to a totally different um, time in your life, a different topic, do you remember the first piece you performed? And assuming you weren't out yet, what was it like to publicly perform as an out gay man versus that performance? Wow, that's a really good question. I mean, the first person, the first piece I performed ever in my life. Yeah. Oh, can be a, it can be a piano piece. It can be whatever. Oh gosh, I don't know if I remember. I mean, so so I got my start singing in church because my grandmother, who passed away a couple of years ago, was a church organist in my hometown for, I think, almost fifty five years. Wow. And so, uh, when I was seven the the choir at the catholic church was doing uh some like really kind of cheesy kind of 70s setting of of dona nobis pacem and there was a solo and she's like you're gonna do this (laughs) and i was like okay so she put the mic in my hand and christmas eve and you know the church was packed and then you know the rest is history so that's the first thing i really remember singing in public so i think i was seven years old and then what was the first person the first piece I performed as an out gay person? God, I don't know. I don't know. You can't remember. And it's okay. It's if you don't but in sort of a general kind of a gestalt state of mind, do you feel different as a performer now that you're out versus prior to that? Was there a difference in your sort of the essence of performance? Oh, that's I don't know that I've really thought much about this. I mean, so you know, c- coming out is a was a was a journey. You know, so I started when I was fourteen, and I I wouldn't say I was really fully out until college. So I think probably definitely in college, I think it was is when that really started to change. You know, because because in high school I was still too you know, sort of like, you know, only out to a few people and sort of secretive and, you know, you know, when you grow up in the middle of nowhere, you assume that you're the only gay person anywhere in the world. And, you know, it, it, it does seem a bit like a, like a different time, you know, I, I mean, I just, I don't remember really in college singing that much music that was really explicitly queer or even like really explicitly social justice oriented. Right. And that's, that's different now. There's, there's, there's so this whole treasure trove of repertoire that that covers those important topics. I don't really know how to answer that question, but I'm gonna. It's okay. I'm gonna have to think about it. It's a, a getting your gray matter going is is it's good. Yeah. So, um, going back to conducting, 
there's a question we like to ask all of our podcast guests um, on their views of the baton, because as you know, the name of the podcast is No Baton Needed, um, kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. So we ask everybody, do you use one? Do you not use one? When do you use it? When when do you not use it? Is there a formula around that? Uh, I do use a baton usually when I'm working with instrumentalists and choirs together, or... Uh, yeah, so so that's that's the sort of general rule for me. Or if there's extenuating circumstances, right? So when we performed at the CCDA conference, we did a really beautiful piece by Andrew Clearfield called "The Poet of the Body and the Soul," and it's one of these pieces with a kind of monstrous, wicked piano accompaniment, right? And the way that ended up being in St. Joseph's Cathedral was that, like. I was, uh, for you know, maybe some of your listeners, since this is based in San Jose, have been there. But I, I was standing on the, the I don't know what you call that thing, the rounded, the raised, rounded, yeah, raised platform. Like the communion, communion table is right there, that yes. circular table, and there's like a raised, yeah, right. And the choir was was back where the 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 chairs normally are, and the piano ended up being way off to the right, and 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 Dr. Han was quite far away, and so I ended up using a baton for that, just just to make it easier for her to see. But um, yeah, so generally, I I only use it when when I'm working with instrumentalists. It's it's been fascinating to hear what people sort of think around that. So, um, and what where the overlap is too, like everybody has a common answer, and then where it's different. Yeah. Have you ever had a bad experience or a negative review um, or response because you're an openly gay conductor? I don't. Uh, I don't think so. Um, it, I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is that you know students are able to do student evaluations at the end of every semester, and they're anonymous, right? So every semester, I get you know maybe one or two comments from university choir students that talk about me making choir too political, um, and to keep my politics out of out of choir. But other than that, I I don't think so. I don't think so. I guess I've been very fortunate in that way. That that is good. Yeah. It, for sure. Have you had that experience? Uh, no. The, uh, no. Um, I've been lucky enough to be either directing an ensemble that is a gay ensemble, like the Silicon Valley Gaiman's Chorus or the Full Spectrum Chorus in Santa Cruz or something like that, or to be uh, um, working with students or singers at schools or communities that are part of a community that's very loving and accepting so and and then that's my whole philosophy from the podium too. This you know just trying to create community and love through this process. So I I think that it the space is safe enough that it never comes up. It there may be comments behind my back that I don't realize, like you know Daniel's too whatever for me or or something, and that's okay. Um, but I've never I've never gotten a review in a paper or or you know somebody sending me an email saying you're you're too gay. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, so I remember, I remember when I was a student, when I was doing that guest year at San Jose State, I was, I was at Dr. Archbeck's house doing something, maybe taking a conducting lesson or something. And, and I think you called. And I, I I'd sort of, I, I mean, I knew who you were. I don't know, know that I had met you at that point. But I, I remember always sort of holding you up as an example of someone that 
could be out and have a really successful career, right? Um, so I think that was, you know, that was definitely influential for me well, at that point. I mean, it was, cool. <laughs> I, I mean, I was 19 at that point, so. It, well, and I'm lucky to actually be making music where I'm making music, too. It, I mean, geography definitely plays a factor. So it's it was easier for me than I think it would be for somebody in um, Mississippi or something. It's a, right. Um, in an effort to expand um, repertoire, musical repertoire, and knowledge uh, for me and for our listeners, are there transgendered choristers or conductors that you admire or love that are on YouTube and social media that our listeners could check out? Trans composers. It can be a composer or a conductor or an ensemble. Yes, of course. Trans Chorus of LA, you know, they're, they're trailblazers. Um, you know, I believe they performed as part of the virtual inauguration somehow um, this past week. There are a number of, of tra- other trans courses that are popping up. There's, I know there's one in Cleveland. There's one in Boston. There's one in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'm sure there are others that that I'm that I'm um, forgetting to mention. There's a great gospel choir in San Francisco called the Transcendence Gospel Choir that's been around for 25 years. They've been around. They're they're they were sort of their own thing for a long time. Specifically, gospel music, smaller group, like maybe eight or ten singers and a band. Wow. Yeah, yeah they've been around for a while. Um, I remember seeing. Yeah, I had no idea. Transcendence Gospel Choir. Check them out. Yeah, so uh, in terms of composers, uh, Mari Valverde, of course, in Texas. Michael Buzuet's Quarm is out in Long Island, New York. I don't know of... I, they're, 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 I'm, sure, I'm positive there are other out trans composers. Um, I, I need to probably do my homework and, and find out who they are, but I, I don't know of others. And it's interesting, I think, from the standpoint of the composer, is is the composer writing music that has a political bent to it, that's addressing the topic, or are they just a composer that writes in an expanded sort of form like other composers and they just happen to be trans? To, you know, so it, it may be harder to pinpoint. It's different when, you know, like in the 70s, for example, um, Wendy Carlos who was kind of a trailblazer, trailblazer musician in terms of electronics, um, became really famous doing all of the the Bach repertoire on the Moog synthesizer. Uh, but when Wendy had transitioned, <clears throat> that was a big deal too. Um, but it's a it was a notable thing because you just it still wasn't happening very much. So now it's what's what's it's in a way it's almost nice that we. It just is kind of so normal that it isn't like sticking out. Do you know what I mean? It's becoming more of a thing. So, so you made a point about are they are they just are they are they a trans composer that's writing trans related music or just writing music? So Mari is an example of someone that's doing both, right? And so I've actually been working with her on a commission project because one of the things that doesn't get talked about nearly often enough is that we have a an epidemic of of trans women of color being murdered in this country. You know, um, and it and you know it hardly ever gets covered on the news, um, and it's it's you know it's sort of niche conversations that happen within the queer community if they even happen. So um, I I I spearheaded a commission project through Gala 
And it's the, so the, the lyricist is my friend, uh, Dane Figueroa Aditi, who's a, a, a black trans woman in, based in Washington, D.C., and Mari is writing the music, and the piece is called We Hold Their Names Sacred. And so the, the text is written, and Mari's about halfway done writing the piece. And uh, uh, it's, um, I'm really excited about, about that project. And we're hope, I'm hoping that that is going to be a, the first in a series of works uh, on that topic, because it's, it's really important that we talk about it. Is this composition... Uh SATB, does it have instruments? Do you, do you, are it's those? It's SATB with piano, but she's also going to do uh, an SSAA and a TTBB voicing. And is it an extended work or like a single six minute number? Single, I think four or five ish minute work. I'm, I'm asking yeah. because I'm really interested in doing that as well. So um, yeah. maybe we'll have you come up and guest conduct it. I would love it. When we come back. Um, for our listeners, for those of you who don't know who, what GALA is, GALA is uh, Gay and Lesbian Alliance. It's this kind of the international organization devoted to gay and lesbian courses, um, trans courses ar- around the globe, and they have a convention every four years. And, and you you don't actually have to be uh, an LGBTQA chorus to be part of it. The Choral Project actually is part of that organization and is sung at their conventions because we support the community and we want to show that we can be, you know, primarily a cisgender group and and still be behind and, you know, primarily a straight choir. It's not, we're not, we have gay membership, but we're not a gay chorus. And, but we're there supporting an organization that is about those things. Where could our listeners go virtually, of course, to learn more about becoming agents of social justice and inclusivity? Uh, there is a phenomenal one of the, one of the people that uh, I interviewed for the book is a trans woman named Melanie Stanford, and she is a middle school choir teacher in Houston, and she just completed her master's at the University of North Texas, and as part of her capstone project, she put together this incredible website, which is blurringthebinary.com. And it walks you really beautifully and clearly through gender identity and all the gender-related things, and then how those things apply in choral spaces. It's a phenomenal resource. Um, there is the the Gala Chorus website has a, a great uh, section about about trans singers. Um, definitely, you know these these trans choruses that we've talked about. Um, I've got a website that's in horrible. You know, it's it's quite uh, it needs to be updated, uh, and that's uh, queeringchoir.com, uh, which is a, a place that I'm sort of trying to centralize a lot of work and scholarship about about LGBTQA issues in in choir. Um, I should just pull up the the appendix for the book because I'm forgetting all the websites, but <laughs> there those are a few of the 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 major ones that I recommend. So regarding the book, really quick, what is it called? Honoring Trans and Gender Expansive Students in Music Education. And the release date is soon, correct? Uh, sometime in 2021. Okay, so... So, I'm guessing, a, like, around the time school goes back in the fall. Terrific. Yeah. What projects are on the horizon for you? I have been asked to write a book chapter for a new volume called The Rutledge Companion of Gender and Jazz. And so I'm not a jazzer. I'm not a formally trained jazz musician in any way, shape, or form. So 
I recruited my friend Carl Oser, who recently finished his master's in choral conducting at San Jose State, who's now teaching down here in, um, in the Valley at a private school. He, he did his undergrad in jazz voice at USC. So um, I recruited him and then uh, they really wanted to, the, the editor really wanted to have, you know, trans representation. So Carl got us in touch with a professional jazz bassist named Jennifer Lightham, L-E-I-T-H-A-M, who's phenomenal. You should check out her website. Um, she is a, an out trans woman who had a whole career before she transitioned. So she toured for many years with with Mel Torme and yeah. played with all kind of um, amazing, amazing people. Um, and she actually has a couple of albums that deal directly with her with her transition. And so so we're working on that together. That's due too soon. It's due in March. <laughs> um, and then I got asked to write another book chapter for a book called The Handbook of Art and Music, which is going to be with Bloomsbury Press. And th- what they want me to do is, uh, the, my working title for that chapter is Queerness in Music Education, colon, a panoptic view. So sort of taking a, a much broader view of like, what has the discourse about queerness in music education been? And where did it start? And what were the roots? And where has it, where have we gone? And where do we still need to go? So I'm kind of excited about that. Well, this, that sentence is a perfect segue into my next question, because I'm curious to know where and how do you hope to see the world the choral world evolve regarding inclusivity and trans representation. I mean, it's it's a lot of I think it's a lot of small things. You know, uh, you know, adding adding your pronouns to your email signature is is like a it's, to a cisgender person might seem like a, a incredibly minor thing, but you know, if if you have that and then you have a singer that's interested in singing with Choral Project that emails you and you respond and they see that, that's an automatic cue that you're gender woke, right? And that, you know, that's such a small thing, um, you know, the, like, like we've talked about the normalizing of pronouns and the, the careful uh, use of language in rehearsal, which we haven't talked about, right? Like, we're, like, we're not saying men and women anymore, right? Because we mean, if we mean tenors and basses, we should just say tenors and basses, right? Um, things like, what do we do with highly gendered repertoire, Right. You know, I think, you know, one of the pieces that I sang with, with both you uh, and with, with Dr. Archibald was is Lighthearted Lovers the, by Kirk Meacham, which is a great piece, right? But very gendered, right? And lots of gender stereotypes. Or like the Brahms Neckerine, something like that. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should never do those pieces again. But if you program those pieces, you know, I, I think in this day and age, you, you really need to have a discussion contextualizing that text. Right. So, you know, what, you know, when I, when you think about that Brahms text, it's, um, you know, I think the story is it's a, it's like an Eastern European folk tale that got translated. I mean, but you know, you have to situate it in the time in which it was written, right. And make it explicit to the chorus that just because, you know, this, this piece contains really stereotypical gender roles, I'm not, I'm not, saying that this is what I believe about gender roles, right? Uh, you know, th- things like that, contextualizing the texts. Um, and then, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I, 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 I don't believe that there are 
musical or teaching situations that are apolitical, right? And so I'm very much about using our platform to to make statements, right? And you know, one of the reasons I was so heartbroken about this this Beyond Borders project being canceled is because it was actually it wasn't even my idea. What we have this incredible student who's a third year core led major, core led and voice double major now from San Diego, who is Mexican American and he came to me a couple of years ago and he said, you know, I spent I spent much of the summer traveling back and forth across the border to see my family. And he's like, most of the most of my my friends here in Long Beach have no idea what the situation at the border is and how tenuous it is and 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 what's actually happening with people's lives there, right? And so he's the one who like spearheaded this whole thing and 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 spearheaded the the fundraising for it. And I mean, uh you know, and you know what an opportunity for us as a chorus and as as university students to to learn a great wealth of repertoire that surrounded that but also to actually bring it to the place that we're singing about right so i just think we have so many phenomenal opportunities through our art form to to tell these stories and to to raise up these voices that are that have been silenced for way too long right and yeah. I'm trying to remember all the things we wrote about in the book. <laughs> That's th- those are the major things. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm, I I couldn't agree more. It's terrific. So, it's we always conclude with a little game called Would You Rather? Oh my. The di- questions are different for each person, but so, uh, would you rather listen to Broadway music or country music? Broadway. Would you rather be in quarantine with an opera singer or a violinist? Violinist. Are you a coffee or a tea drinker? Coffee, please. And then would you rather live without coffee or tea or live without a television? Oh, gosh, that's really hard. Without a television. Life without coffee isn't worth living. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather be fluent in all languages or be a master of every musical instrument? I know these questions are mean. (laughs) I think musical instrument. Yeah. And then lastly, would you rather spend the day with a headstrong politician from an opposing party or attend a day-long concert festival with music groups you dislike? Oh, music groups, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, because I could at least sit there and, you know, just analyze the chord progressions or something, right? right? There you go. <laughs> Those are good. Those are good. Well, Josh, it's I love talking to you. It's, I always feel very refreshed. I, I miss having you, you know, in my backyard, but it, I know. I'm glad that you're, you're close. And I'm glad that um, things like this afford us an opportunity to reconnect. And it, Absolutely. Our, our, our form is really lucky to have you being um, such a trailblazer in it. And then helping t- teach the rest of us about what you found in your journey. I, I, it's been very valuable for me as a director. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're doing this project. You know, I, it's, uh, I think finding ways to keep our art form alive and viable in this time is really important. And, and you know, the Coral Project has been really, really influential in my own, my own journey. And so it's, uh, it's a real honor to be a part of this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you for listening to the No Baton Needed podcast. 
And special thanks to the Coral Project board member, Lucy Conley, for sponsoring this episode in memory of Joe Katami. To learn about how you can sponsor the podcast, please email podcast at coralproject.org. Yeah.